Book One, Chapter Nine of *The Return of the Native* by Thomas Hardy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Book One: The Three Women, Chapter Nine. Love leads a shrewd man into strategy. Rattlemen of the old school are now but seldom seen. Since the introduction of railways, Wessex farmers have managed to do without these Mephistophelian visitants, and the bright pigment, so largely used by shepherds in preparing sheep for the fair, is obtained by other routes. Even those who yet survive are losing the poetry of existence which characterized them when the pursuit of the trade meant periodical journeys to the pits whence the material was dug, a regular camping out from month to month, except in the depth of winter a peregrination among farms which could be counted by the hundred and in spite of this arab existence the preservation of that respectability which is ensured by the never-failing production of a well-lined purse Reddle spreads its lively hues over everything it lights on and stamps unmistakably as with the mark of cain any person who has handled it half an hour a child's first sight of a reddleman was an epoch in his life that blood-coloured figure was a sublimation of all the horrid dreams which had afflicted the juvenile spirit since imagination began the riddle man is coming for you had been the formulated threat of wessex mothers for many generations he was successfully supplanted for a while at the beginning of the present century by bonaparte but as process of time rendered the latter personage stale and ineffective the older phrase resumed its early prominence and now the rattleman has in his turn followed bonaparte to the land of worn-out bogies and his place is filled by modern inventions the rattleman lived like a gypsy but gypsies he scorned he was about as thriving as travelling basket and mat-makers but he had nothing to do with them he was more decently born and brought up than the cattle drovers who passed and repassed him in his wanderings but they merely nodded to him his stock was more valuable than that of peddlers, but they did not think so, and passed his cart with eyes straight ahead. He was such an unnatural colour to look at that the men of roundabouts and waxwork shows seemed gentlemen beside him, but he considered them low company and remained aloof. Among all these squatters and folks of the road, the reddleman continually found himself, yet he was not of them his occupation tended to isolate him and isolated he was mostly seen to be it was sometimes suggested that rattlemen were criminals for whose misdeeds other men wrongfully suffered that in escaping the law they had not escaped their own consciences and had taken to the trade as a lifelong penance else why should they have chosen it in the present case such a question would have been particularly apposite the rattleman who had entered Egdon that afternoon was an instance of the pleasing being wasted to form the groundwork of the singular, when an ugly foundation would have done just as well for that purpose. The one point that was forbidding about this rattleman was his colour. Freed from that, he would have been as agreeable a specimen of rustic manhood as one would often see. A keen observer might have been inclined to think which was indeed partly the truth, that he had relinquished his proper station in life 
for want of interest in it. Moreover, after looking at him, one would have hazarded the guess that good nature, and an acuteness as extreme as it could be without verging on craft, formed the framework of his character. While he darned the stocking, his face became rigid with thought. Softer expressions followed this, and then again recurred the tender sadness which had set upon him during his drive along the highway that afternoon. Presently his needle stopped. He laid down the stocking, arose from his seat, and took a leathern pouch from a hook in the corner of the van. This contained, among other articles, a brown paper packet, which, to judge from the hinge-like character of its worn folds, seemed to have been carefully opened and closed a good many times. He sat down on a three-legged milking-stool, that formed the only seat in the van, and examining his packet by the light of a candle, took thence an old letter, and spread it open. The writing had originally been traced on white paper, but the letter had now assumed a pale red tinge from the accident of its situation, and the black strokes of writing thereon looked like the twigs of a winter hedge against a vermilion sunset. The letter bore a date some two years previous to that time, and was signed Thomason Yobright. It ran as follows. Dear Diggory Van, the question you put when you overtook me, coming home from Pont Close, gave me such a surprise that I am afraid I did not make you exactly understand what I meant. Of course, if my aunt had not met me, I could have explained all then at once. But as it was, there was no chance. I have been quite uneasy since, as you know I do not wish to pain you, yet I fear I shall be doing so now, in contradicting what I seemed to say then. I cannot, Diggory, marry you, or think of letting you call me your sweetheart. I could not, indeed, Diggory. I hope you will not much mind my saying this, and feel in a great pain. It makes me very sad when I think it may, for I like you very much, and I always put you next to my cousin Clem in my mind. There are so many reasons why we cannot be married that I can hardly name them all in a letter. I did not in the least expect that you were going to speak on such a thing when you followed me, because I had never thought of you in the sense of a lover at all. You must not be called me for laughing when you spoke. You mistook when you thought I laughed at you as a foolish man. I laughed because the idea was so odd, and not at you at all. The great reason with my own personal self for not letting you court me is that I do not feel the things a woman ought to feel who consents to walk with you with the meaning of being your wife. It is not as you think that I have another in my mind, for I do not encourage anybody, and never have in my life. Another reason is my aunt. She would not, I know, agree to it, even if I wished to have you. She likes you very well, but she will want me to look a little higher than a small dairy farmer, and marry a professional man. I hope you will not set your heart against me for writing plainly, but I felt you might try to see me again, and it is better that we should not meet. I shall always think of you as a good man, and be anxious for your well-doing. I sent this by Jane Orchard's little maid, and remain, Diggory, your faithful friend, Thomasin Yorbright, to Mr. Van Derry Farmer. Since the arrival of that letter, on a certain autumn morning long ago, the Reddleman and Thomason had not met till to-day. During the interval, he had shifted his position even further from hers than it had originally been. 
by adopting the Reddle trade, though he was really in very good circumstances still. Indeed, seeing that his expenditure was only one-fourth of his income, he might have been called a prosperous man. Rejected suitors take to roaming as naturally as unhived bees, and the business to which he had cynically devoted himself was, in many ways, congenial to Venn. But his wanderings, by mere stress of old emotions, had frequently taken on an Egdon direction, though he never intruded upon her who attracted him thither. To be in Thomason's Heath, and nearer, yet unseen, was that one ewe-lamb of pleasure left to him. Then came the incident of that day, and the Redleman, still loving her well, was excited by this accidental service to her at a critical juncture to vow an active devotion to her cause, instead of, as hitherto, sighing and holding aloof. After what had happened, it was impossible that he should not doubt the honesty of Wild Eve's intentions. But her hope was apparently centred upon him, and, dismissing his regrets, then determined to aid her to be happy in her own chosen way. That this way was, of all others, the most distressing to himself was awkward enough, but the Redleman's love was generous. His first active step in watching over Thomason's interests was taken about seven o'clock the next evening, and was dictated by the news which he had learnt from that sad boy. That Eustatia was somehow the cause of Wild Eve's carelessness in relation to the marriage had at once been Vent's conclusion on hearing of the secret meeting between them. It did not occur to his mind that Eustatia's love signal to Wild Eve was the tender effect upon the deserted beauty of the intelligence which her grandfather had brought home. His instinct was to regard her as a conspirator against, rather than as an antecedent obstacle to, Thomason's happiness. During the day he had been exceedingly anxious to learn the condition of Thomason, but he did not venture to intrude upon a threshold to which he was a stranger, particularly at such an unpleasant moment as this. He had occupied his time in moving his ponies and load to a new point in the heath, eastward to the previous station, and here he selected a nook with a careful eye to shelter from wind and rain which seemed to mean that his stay there was to be a comparatively extended one. After this he returned on foot some part of the way that he had come, and, it being now dark, he diverged to the left till he stood behind a holly-bush on the edge of a pit, not twenty yards from Rainbarrow. He watched for a meeting there, but he watched in vain. Nobody except himself came near the spot that night but the loss of his labour produced little effect upon the Redleman. He had stood in the shoes of Tantalus, and seemed to look upon a certain mass of disappointment as the natural preface to all realizations, without which preface they would give cause for alarm. The same hour the next evening found him again at the same place, but Eustatia and Wildeve, the expected Tristers, did not appear. He pursued precisely the same course, yet four nights longer, and without success. But on the next, being the day week after their previous meeting, he saw a female shape floating along the ridge, and the outline of a young man ascending from the valley. They met in the little ditch, encircling the tumulus, the original excavation from which it had been thrown up by the ancient British people. 
the rattleman slung with suspicion of wrong to thomason was aroused to strategy in a moment he instantly left the bush and crept forward on his hands and knees when he had got as close as he might safely venture without discovery he found that owing to a crosswind the conversation of the trysting pair could not be overheard near him as in diverse places about the heath were areas strewn with large turves which lay edgewise and upside down awaiting removal by timothy fairway previous to the winter weather he took two of these as he lay and dragged them over him till one covered his head and shoulders the other his back and legs the rattleman would now have been quite invisible even by daylight the turves standing upon him with the heather upwards looked precisely as if they were growing he crept along again and the turves upon his back crept with him had he approached without any covering the chances are that he would not have been perceived in the dusk approaching thus it was as if he burrowed underground in this manner he came quite close to where the two were standing wish to consult me on the matter reached his ears in the rich impetuous accents of eustatia vi consult me it is an indignity to talk to me so i won't bear it any longer she began weeping i have loved you and have shown you that i loved you much to my regret and yet you can come and say in that frigid way that you wish to consult with me whether it would not be better to marry thomason better of course it would be marry her she is nearer to your own position in life than i am yes yes that's very well said wildeve peremptorily but we must look at things as they are whatever blame may attach to me for having brought it about thomason's position is at present much worse than yours i simply tell you that i am in a strait but you shall not tell me you must see that it is only harassing me damon you have not acted well you have sunk in my opinion you have not valued my courtesy the courtesy of a lady in loving you who used to think of far more ambitious things but it was thomason's fault she won you away from me and she deserves to suffer for it where is she staying now not that i care nor where i am myself ah if i were dead and gone how glad she would be where is she i ask thomason is now staying at her aunt's shut up in a bedroom and keeping out of everybody's sight he said indifferently i don't think you care much about her even now said eustacia with sudden joyousness for if you did you wouldn't talk so coolly about her do you talk so coolly to her about me ah i expect you do why did you originally go away from me i don't think i can ever forgive you except on one condition that whenever you desert me you come back again sorry that you served me so i never wish to desert you i do not thank you for that i should hate it to be all smooth indeed i think i like you to desert me a little once now and then love is the dismalest thing when the lover is quite honest oh it is a shame to say so but it is true she indulged in a little laugh my low spirits begin at the very idea don't you offer me tame love or away you go i wish tamsy were not such a confoundedly good little woman said wildeve so that i could be faithful to you without injuring a worthy person it is i who am the sinner after all 
I am not worth the little finger of either of you. But you must not sacrifice yourself to her from any sense of justice, replied Eustacia quickly. If you do not love her, it is the most merciful thing, in the long run, to leave her as she is. That's always the best way. There, now I have been unwomanly, I suppose. When you have left me, I am always angry with myself for things that I have said to you. Wild Eve walked a pace or two among the heather without replying. The pause was filled up by the intonation of a pollard thorn a little way to windward, the breezes filtering through its unyielding twigs as through a strainer. It was as if the night sang dirges with clenched teeth. She continued, half sorrowfully. Since meeting you last, it has occurred to me once or twice, that perhaps it was not for love of me you did not marry her. Tell me, Damon, I'll try to bear it. Had I nothing whatever to do with the matter? Do you press me to tell? Yes, I must know. I see I have been too ready to believe in my own power. Well, the immediate reason was that the license would not do for the place, and before I could get another she ran away. Up to that point you had nothing to do with it. Since then her aunt has spoken to me in a tone which I don't like at all. Yes, yes, I am nothing in it. You only trifle with me. Heaven, what can I, Eustacia Vi, be made of to think so much of you? Nonsense. Do not be so passionate. Eustacia, how we roved amongst these bushes last year, when the hot days had got cool, and the shades of the hills kept us almost invisible in the hollows. She remained in moody silence, till she said, Yes and how I used to laugh at you for daring to look up to me. But you have well made me suffer for that since. Yes, you served me cruelly enough until I thought I had found someone fairer than you. A blessed fine for me, Eustacia. Do you still think you have found somebody fairer? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. The scales are balanced so nicely that a feather would turn them. But don't you really care whether I meet you, or whether I don't? She said slowly. I care a little, but not enough to break my rest, replied the young man languidly. No, all that's past. I find there are two flowers where I thought there was only one. Perhaps there are three, or four, or any number as good as the first. Mine is a curious fate. Who would have thought that all this could happen to me? She interrupted with a suppressed fire of which either love or anger seemed an equally possible issue. Do you love me now? Who can say? Tell me, I will know it. I do, and I do not, said he mischievously. That is, I have my times and my seasons. One moment you are too tall, another moment you are too do-nothing, another too melancholy, another too dark, another... I don't know what, except that you are not the whole world to me that you used to be, my dear, but you are a pleasant lady to know and nice to meet, and I dare say as sweet as ever. Almost. Eustacia was silent, and she turned from him, till she said, in a voice of suspended mightiness, I am for a walk, and this is my way. Well, I can do worse than follow you. You know you can't do otherwise. For all your moods and changes she answered defiantly say what you will try as you may keep away from me all that you can you will never forget me 
you will love me all your life long you would jump to marry me so i would said wild eve such strange thoughts as i've had from time to time eustacia and they come to me this moment you hate the heath as much as ever that i know i do she murmured deeply tis my cross my shame and will be my death i abhor it too said he <sighs> how mournfully the wind blows round us now she did not answer its tone was indeed solemn and pervasive compound utterances addressed themselves to their senses and it was possible to view by ear the features of the neighbourhood acoustic pictures were returned from the darkened scenery they could hear where the tracks of heather began and ended where the furze was growing stocky and tall where it had been recently cut in what direction the fir clump lay and how near was the pit in which the hollies grew for these differing features had their voices no less than their shapes and colours god how lonely it is resumed wild eve what are picturesque ravines and mists to us who see nothing else why should we stay here will you go with me to america i have kindred in wisconsin that wants consideration it seems impossible to do well here unless one were a wild bird or a landscape painter well give me time she said softly taking his hand america is so far away are you going to walk with me a little way as eustacia uttered the latter words she retired from the base of the barrow and wild eve followed her so that the riddle man could hear no more he lifted the turves and arose their black figures sank and disappeared from against the sky they were as two horns which the sluggish heath had put forth from its crown like a mollusk and had now again drawn in the riddleman's walk across the vale and over into the next where his cart lay was not sprightly for a slim young fellow of twenty-four his spirit was perturbed to aching the breezes that blew around his mouth in that walk carried off upon them the accents of a combination he entered the van where there was a fire in a stove without lighting his candle he sat down at once on the three-legged stool and pondered on what he had seen and heard touching that still loved one of his he uttered a sound which was neither sigh nor sob but was even more indicative than either of a troubled mind oh, my tempsy he whispered heavily what can be done yes i will see that eustacia vi end of book one chapter nine